Good morning. I trust that you've all had a, uh, hopefully, a pleasant Christmas season. We're winding up this year, heading back into 2014. We're continuing this morning in our study of the book of Ephesians, having taken a couple of weeks to look more specifically at a couple of sermons related to Christmas. And so we're back into Ephesians again this morning. So for those of you who are new and for those of you like myself who may have forgotten what we did three or four weeks ago, I'll just give you a quick review of where we've come in the book of Ephesians. We're actually halfway through it. Uh, we're kind of heading off into the first part of chapter 4. Ephesians has six chapters in the first three we've covered. So just a quick review. Uh, in chapter 1, Paul talked about the many spiritual blessings that we have as a result of being a Christian. Those blessings are enumerated quite clearly in chapter 1, things like election and adoption, uh, redemption, forgiveness, covers uh, wisdom, inheritance, predestination, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then chapter 2, he talks about how we were once all horrible sinners, but God, being rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus to die on our behalf, and therefore we are reconciled to God, and he made us uh, alive in Christ, even though we were formerly dead. And so Paul gives uh, praise for that. It reminds us that this gift of our salvation is, a, is, a, is truly a gift. It's by grace that we receive it. It's through faith. It's nothing that we have done, and we have no reason to boast. Uh, and that's the key part of uh, chapter 2. But he also mentions that Jews and Gentiles, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, have now been united. Whereas previously Jews and Gentiles were at war with one another and hated each other, through the death of Jesus uh, they have come together and are now united. And then in chapter 3, he gives praise for that union again and talks about how Jews and Gentiles both have this common inheritance that is a hope of being with Jesus when we die and live with him forever. And that that, that union, that unity of Jews and Gentiles was a mystery, a mystery that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament but then became revealed as part of the, our New Testament and we understand it today uh, in all its fullness. And then Paul prays for the Ephesian believers, and he prays for them that they might have strength for a number of reasons, one of which is that they might be able to comprehend God's incomprehensible love for them. And so that's where we wind up at the end of, of chapter 3. And he makes a shift as he goes into chapter 4. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about doctrinal things, things that are true about us regardless of how we act. And then, and then chapters 4 through 6, he makes a shift in emphasis. And he stops talking about so much doctrine and facts and things that have already taken place. But he talks about how we should act and how we should apply the things that we've already learned. And so as we get into chapter 4 today, he makes that shift and starts talking about things of practical application. And one of the first things he talks about in practical application is he talks about unity in the church. Unity in the church. And if we were to go back and look at the sort of a major summary of the entire letter of Ephesians, we'd say it's all about unity. It's all about how important unity is within the church and how to carry that out. And so would you turn your Bibles, uh, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I just wanted to talk a little bit briefly, before we get into this section of Scripture, just briefly about what has, has, uh, has happened in terms of unity in the church. I want to remind you that unity in the church is a big problem. It's been a big problem since Jesus walked on the earth, and it's a big problem even today. And disunity has a very destructive effect on churches all over the world. 
And just to give you sort of an example of a few of these, uh, there's a church in, in Greeley, Colorado, that in 2011 split over how to spell the word hallelujah. It's true. They got so embroiled with whether it was a J in it or not a J in it that, 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 that the church actually split as a result of that. That's a sad thing. My wife and I and our family, we lived in London many years ago for a few years, and while we were there, we were members of a small evangelical church. We've kept up uh, in touch with them, some of them, uh, for many years since we moved back to the United States. We were saddened about two or three years ago when we heard that the church had split. And we said, well, what, what happened? They split because they had a serious disagreement about the use of PowerPoint slides in the sermon. Can you imagine that? We couldn't imagine it. Having been participants and, and, and members of that church for several years, that they would split over something as trivial as PowerPoint slides. But it gets worse from there. In, in, in Landover, Maryland, in 1999, they split over a piano bench. There was so One part of the church was so concerned about where the piano bench sat in the service that the church split. And they wound up using the same church building for two different services. They brought the one crew in and put the church, the piano bench, in a certain spot, held their services, got in the cars, and went home. Thirty minutes later, the other half of the church would come in, move the piano bench to the other side of the church, hold their services, and the two groups of people never crossed paths again. It's silly, isn't it? In 1890, there's a Baptist church in Mayfield County, Kentucky. It split over a wooden peg that one of the deacons drove into the church wall so that the preacher could hang up his hat. One of the other deacons was so incensed that he'd driven a wooden peg into the church wall that he tried to take that out, but he wasn't able to pull it out, and the two guys got into a tussle. The church took sides on this thing, and the church wound up splitting and over 100 years later, you can still go to this county, you'll find two Baptist churches there. One is called Peg Baptist Church, and the other church is called Anti-Peg Baptist Church. I'm not kidding. Here's my favorite one, though. There's a church in Centerville, Georgia. I've not been there, but I want to go. It's split 13 times in 80 years. The first church split was over whether the offering plate should be passed before or after the sermon. That was the first church split way back in the late 1800s. And the most recent split, which was just a few years ago, they split over whether it was appropriate to read emails on Sunday. Now, each time this church split, every time they split, now 13 times over 80 years, they renamed the church so that they would have the proper identity for the church. After 13 church splits, this is the name of the church. It's a true story. The name of the church is the Presbyterian, Totally Reformed, Covenantal, Westminsterian, Sabbatarian, Regulative, Credo-Communist, A-Millennial, Presuppositional Church of Centerville. It's called PTRCWSRCCAMPC of Centerville. It's silly, though, isn't it? It's ridiculous, in the true sense of the word ridiculous, that it draws ridicule. It draws ridicule not only from us as Christians, but it draws ridicule from the community. And what a bad witness we can be when, we, when we're disunified. So with that as an introduction, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and see what Paul has to say about unity in the church. Reading from Ephesians chapter 4, we'll read 1 through 6. 
Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul starts out with the word therefore. And I think what he means is, he says, he says in light of the, all these things that we've talked about in chapters 1 through 3, in light of all the, the things that God has done on our behalf through Christ Jesus, in light of all that, he says, walk, or some of your Bibles will say, live your lives, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we see this word calling again. We talked about this many weeks ago when we looked in in Ephesians chapter 1 about this calling. We are a church, we're an ecclesia, which means to be called out from. We are called out from the world by God before the foundation of time. And and, and Paul says that even in in chapter 1 in verse 4. And so we are the called out ones. We were chosen and called out before the foundation of the world. And now Paul says that we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which we've been called. And this phrase, in a manner worthy, has an important meaning for us. In a manner worthy has has at its very root the idea of of being uh, balanced in a scale or of equal weight. And so the thought is that Paul says we should give equal weight or balance the scales between our calling, that is God, which, which God has done by calling us out, and our actions or our way of life or our walk. That those two things should be in balance. It's a little bit like when I was a kid. My dad sometimes used to say to me, you're a Hattenberger, act like it. You're a Hattenberger, act like it. And what my dad meant was he felt that Hattenberger was, was what I was called, but it was, it was more than just a name that had some, some meaning behind it, that Hattenburgers were meant to be different than the rest of society, that we were to be more obedient and more respectful, especially in public. And so when he would say, you're a Hattenburger, act like it, he was saying, you're, it's what you called, you're called Hattenburger, I want you to act that way. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here in this section of Scripture. He says, you've been called out as Christians. Walk with equal weight to your calling. You're called as a Christian, act like it. And so he begins, he gives a specific application, and the specific application he jumps into first is unity. So we look at Ephesians verse 3, chapter 4 and verse 3. Paul says he wants them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity of the Spirit. So this unity of the Spirit, in the middle of this verse here, this word unity, the word union, it all comes from the root word one. So people who are unified, who are united, who are in unity, or are in union, they're all one. They're not divided or split. They're all together. Okay? The unity of the Spirit 
that Paul's talking about here is our union with Christ. Every person who places his faith and trust in Jesus as his Savior immediately comes into a relationship with Jesus which is unlike any other relationship that we have on this earth. And this union that we have with Jesus is very specific. It's a unique union. It's a oneness. It's a unity. We are unified with Jesus. We are one with Jesus. And the Bible describes this union that we have with Jesus in a number of different ways. And what I wanted to do before we jump into the rest of Ephesians is just take a little sidetrack and talk about this thing we call our union with Jesus. Now, why do I want to do that? I want to do that because my union with Jesus that took place when I trusted in Jesus at the age of 26 and has carried on since then, the union that I have with Jesus forms the foundation for the union that I would have with other Christians. And I think a better understanding of our union with Jesus will give us a better appreciation of the union that we have as a body of believers. So what I want to do is I want to just sort of fly through sections of Scripture. You won't be able to follow these on the screen or in your Bibles because I'm going to go too fast. But I just want to give you a flavor for what our Bibles describe is our union with Jesus. First thing it calls us is it says that we are in Christ. I must confess that, that every time I read this, and you'll see it all over your Bibles, you see it about six times in the first three chapters of Ephesians, it talks about that we are in Christ. And it's a special way that our Bibles describe the union that we have with Jesus. You'll see it in 2 Corinthians 5.17 where it says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You'll see it in 2 Timothy 1.9 where it talks about God's purpose and grace, which God gave us in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30 said, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.3 said, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And in Romans 8.1, he says, now there, is, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so somehow we have this, this, this magical, hard-to-understand idea that, that, Christ is, uh, is that, is that we are in Christ. And it's part of that union we have with Jesus. But not only in Christ, the Bibles also say that Christ is in us. And so now you see the uniqueness of this relationship, because even in a marriage relationship, you can't quite even talk about that between a man and a wife. It doesn't make sense. And so he talks about Christ being in us. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. John 14, 20, he says, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Galatians 2.20, it says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Romans 4.10 says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul asks the question, Don't you realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? So we have this strange terminology where we are in Christ and Christ is in us. But it's not only that, but we are to be like Christ and we become more and more like Jesus and become one in spirit and following his example. 1 John 3, 2, John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be, he has not yet appeared. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears as Jesus, we will be like him. And 1 Corinthians 6 says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. In 1 John 2, John writes, Whoever 
says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. And 1 Peter 2.21 says that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his footsteps. And so we are to be like Christ. We are to follow him and be like him. So he's in us and we're in him and we're like him and we're following him. And it goes on. He says we are not only to, to be like Christ, we are to be with Christ. And Christ is to be with us. Even though Christ no longer physically walks on the earth as he did uh, 2,000 years ago, he's still with us and we're still with him. It's clear from our Bible says so. Matthew 4, uh, 18, 20 says that for wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And there are more than two or three of us here this morning, and so we know that Christ is here with us. In 1 Corinthians 1, 9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we have fellowship with Jesus, even though he doesn't walk with us physically today. In Matthew 28, 20, just as Jesus was leaving physically to go back to heaven, he said, Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. And so somehow in this union we have with Jesus, he's still here with us and we're with him. But it goes even further than that, is that we, we share with Jesus. We share some very strange and unusual things with Jesus. And Jesus shares some very strange and unusual things with us. We take, God takes our sin and places them upon Jesus. We take Jesus' righteousness and God places it upon us. We have this great exchange. The Bible talks that we are buried with Christ and are raised with Him. It says we have a new life in Jesus. It says we will be glorified with Jesus. And so all these things that Jesus is and was, many of those things we can share in. And the best example of this is in Romans chapter 6, 4, and 5, where Paul writes, it says, We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in His death, like this, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like this. And so we share these, these strange things with Jesus in this reunion we have with Him. Not only that, this, this relationship we have with this union we have with Jesus is an eternal one. Eternal one. It was formed in, before the foundations of the world when God elected us to be, to be called out from among the world. And he, we were called out in a relationship with Jesus. So it started in eternity past. And guess what? It's going to continue in eternity future. So that when I die, or when Jesus returns, I will go to heaven to be with Jesus, bodily and physically, to be with Jesus forever. And so the union we have with Jesus is an eternal one, from eternity past to eternity future. And so the union we have with Jesus is described in these ways in our Bibles. We are in Christ. Jesus is in us. We are like Jesus. We are with Jesus. Jesus is with us. We share with Jesus. He shares with us. This union we have is a God-made union, and it is eternal. And it's a rich and a full union, and it encompasses all aspects of our being and our character and our personalities and our mental capacities and our desires, and our motivations, and our wills, and our joys, and our sorrows, and our successes, and our failures. It, it, it infuses every part of us, if we let it. It's a unique relationship 
also because it's a union between a divine being, Jesus, and a human being, namely me. And it's, it's a firm and a strong and a permanent union, and I can mess it up, but I cannot destroy it because the union was made by God and it will last for eternity. So this is the kind of union we're talking about. And I hope that's helpful to take that little rabbit trail, but now we're going to come back. Because the union that we have with Jesus is not simply between me and Jesus. It's a union that also unites other believers with each other. And so the union that I have with Jesus is the foundation for the union that God has called me to have with other believers, including yourselves. The union that you have with Jesus because you trusted in Jesus as your Savior, that same union is intended to to be the foundation of the union that you have with other believers. And so now we come back to Ephesians chapter 4. We have this unique, strong, and eternal, divine, God-made union. And Paul is telling us to apply it one to another. In Galatians 3.28, Paul makes it very clear that this union we have is a collective one. He says, he says in Galatians 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Romans 12.5, he says, we are, we are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members one of another. And so this individual union that we have with Jesus in the vertical direction is the same kind of union we have with other believers in the horizontal direction. And so now we jump ahead in, in Ephesians chapter 4 and look at verses 4 to 6 for a second. In 4 to 6, Paul demonstrates that just how strong this unity among believers truly is. In fact, he uses the word one seven times in the sentence. He says that we're all united by God in a certain oneness. And so here's what he says. He says there is one body. There is one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And Paul says we have all of these things in common. We have... One body. We have the universal body of believers, including those of you sitting here who have trusted in Jesus. And later on in this letter to the Ephesians, he's going to talk about how we're all like parts of a body, like arms and legs, and how we work together as a body. So we're one body. We're all one body working together. He says there's one Spirit. We all have the very same Holy Spirit who comes to live in our hearts when we trust in Jesus. He says we have one hope. Those of us who have trusted in Christ have one hope, that Jesus will return, and that when we die, we will go to be with Jesus forever. He says we have one Lord, and that's Jesus. It's the same Jesus. All of us share the same Jesus. One Lord. We all have one faith. What we believe, the gospel message, is the same. We all have the same faith. We're all united because of the same faith in our trust in Jesus. We have one baptism. A few weeks ago, we had some baptisms up here. We saw this as a public declaration of our allegiance to Jesus. And those of us who have been baptized have one baptism. We all are aligned in and declare our allegiance in a public way to Jesus when we're baptized. And then he says, we have one God, the Father. We have one Heavenly Father. 
And when we trust in Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. With, with God the Father as the head, we all have a common father. And that makes us brothers and sisters. Literally. Because we have a common father. And so we as believers, Paul says, we are one body called by the same call. We are guided by the same spirit. We are filled with the same hope. We are led by the one Lord, the same Jesus. We stand in the same faith. We are united by the same baptism. We are adopted sons and daughters of the same Father. Furthermore, we're engaged in the same warfare. We fight against the same enemy. We're created for the same purpose. We work for the same mission. We travel the same journey with the same goal. And when we work together, when we're united, when we're united in purpose, when we're united in action and spirit and attitude and love for one another, when we're truly united, we glorify God. And so this is not a simple relationship that we're in, is it? It's a unique relationship. It's a unique relationship that each of us has with Jesus, and it's a unique relationship that we have one to another and as a body of believers. And it's this union that, that Paul is talking about here. Paul calls it the unity of the Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to actually understand it. Because without the Holy Spirit illuminating us and allowing us to see it and realize and experience it, it might be a little bit confusing for us. And it's this unity, it's this union that Paul tells us to maintain. Look at verse 3 in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says in verse 3, he says, he urges us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This phrase, eager to maintain, if you were to unpack it in its Greek and look at the different ways it might be translated, it would come across as saying something like, make every diligent effort, make every diligent effort to maintain, to keep, to guard, to protect, and preserve the unity of the Spirit. But that translation doesn't really capture the full force and the passion with which Paul is writing here. So if you go back and do a little bit of, 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 of Greek stuff and look at the tenses and how it's all emphatic and all that stuff, I let other people do that. But the full force and emotion doesn't come through because Paul's command is in urgent terms. It's emphatic. It's not passive or quiet or wait and see. It's passionate, it's compelling, and he commands us. It's more like, hey, you, take the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You are to do it. Make every effort. Be eager. Be enthusiastic. Make it a priority. Maintain unity. Protect it. Keep it. Guard it. So why is Paul so emphatic? Why is Paul so so passionate and so emphatic that we would keep this unity? Well, I think it's because he realizes that we're just a bunch of sinners. We're radically depraved and left on our own, we're going to wreck it. A good example... I take my children and my, now my grandchildren to the beach uh, for a week. Take your child, child, no matter how old they are, anywhere between the ages of two and eight, take them to the beach, make a sandcastle. But move, do it this way. Make it a really nice sandcastle, right? Do it with some purpose. Build a moat around it, you know, put a little road goes underneath it. Build a nice tower on the, on the side of it. Build a wall around it. Turn your back for one minute. What's the child going to do? Y'all said it. You're going to wreck it. 
He's going to wreck it. Happens every time when we go to the beach. And so I have to turn around. I got to see it a tiger and Adrian and Soraya. And I got to say, okay, I'm going to go get a bucket of water. Don't wreck it. Don't knock it down. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't knock it down. But he's not talking about sandcastles. He's talking about unity. Don't mess it up. Now, one thing that you'll see in here, you won't see Paul saying, is he's not saying, he doesn't say, make unity. He doesn't tell us to go and create unity, does he? He just tells us to maintain it, to protect it, to guard it. Why doesn't he tell us to maintain, or to to make unity? Why doesn't he tell us to go out and, and create some unity? I think it's because we already have the unity. We, we, we don't make it. The relationship that I have with Jesus and the union I have with Jesus is, is something that God ordained and elected for me to have before the foundation of the world. And so, so God made it. Much as I built that sandcastle, God built this union that I have with Him. And the union we have with one another because of our union that we have with Jesus is something that God created. And so He's not telling us to go out and, and make that. He's already made it for us. We, we've got it already. We don't go out and make it. He just wants us to, to make every diligent effort to take the initiative to do what? Not to build it or to make it or to create it, but to protect it and guard it and keep it. Don't mess it up. So now we back up to verse 2. And I forgot to tell you that we're going to do this whole Ephesians 4 thing in reverse. So now we back up to verse 2 and Paul tells us how to maintain unity. He gives us four clear virtues about how we can maintain unity. He says, with all humility, verse 2 now in Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so Paul makes it clear that there's five things here that we need to use and do in order to maintain this unity. And it's humility, it's gentleness, it's patience, it's this thing I'll call forbearance, and it's love. Humility is that lowliness. It's placing others above ourselves. It's taking a proper and a sober view of our own self-worth and placing others in front of us. It's the opposite of thing we call pride. If you want to kill unity, bring pride in. You'll kill it every time. Replace it with humility, and you've got a chance at maintaining unity, Paul says. Then we got this thing called gentleness, or some of your some of your Bibles may call it meekness. This is power under control. It's the opposite of being self-assertive or harsh or rude. It's being gentle. It's being soft, not hard or rough. Gentle. And he talks about patience, or some of your Bibles may say long-suffering or long-tempered. Patience is putting up with pain or discomfort without complaining or nagging or fighting. It's putting up with something for a long period of time that you want to end right now. Then he talks about forbearance or bearing with one another or showing tolerance, depending on which version of your Bible you're looking at. It means to put up with other people without complaining or mouthing off without retaliating, without talking behind their backs, 
tolerating them. It's an action that we direct to people as a result of applying patience. And then lastly, he says, in love. In love, the word agape is an action whereby we put other people's needs ahead of our own. And we do what's best for them, for their own good and not for our own good. And I think you'll recognize that if you were to put all these things together, humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and do it in love, we wouldn't get into squabbles like wooden pegs in a wall. We wouldn't get into squabbles about piano benches. We wouldn't get into squabbles about whether we pass the plate before or after the sermon or whether we should look at emails on Sunday afternoon. Paul tells us that's how we maintain unity. Paul writes a lot about unity in his letters. In his letters to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, he urges all these churches to be unified, to work and live in harmony, to work and live at peace with one another. To the church in Rome, Paul writes, live in harmony with one another. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. He says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. To the church in Corinth, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there will be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And to the church at Philippi, he writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I am not there, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Then he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And to the church at Colossae, he writes, Above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's no coincidence that Paul writes often and much about unity in the church. It's no coincidence that Paul is emphatic and passionate about the fact that we should maintain unity in the church. It's no coincidence because the words of Scripture are the very inspired words of God, whereby God breathed into the writers what to write. And so when we see something like unity covered over and over and over again to different churches in different places with passion, we know that God is passionate about unity in our churches. Unity in the church is important to God. And it should be important to us. Unfortunately, unity in the church is not easy. It's not easy because the chairs in this gym today are filled with sinners. And this podium is filled with sinners. People like you and me, who are imperfect beings, and you're left to our own devices... When the builder of the castle turns to go get a bucket of water, our natural inclination is to knock the castle down. 
and left to our own desires, and our own selfish desires, we're likely to trample on the unity of the Spirit that God gave us because of our union with Jesus and the union that we share with other believers. And so it's not easy. As an elder board, we spend uh, some time talking about unity. We are concerned about the unity of this local church. Yes, we're concerned about the unity of the global church, but frankly, we can't have too much influence on that. We can have a lot of influence on this local church, thing we call Tumble Bible Church. I believe unity in this church is one of the key issues that we face as a church today. And that's why this section of Scripture, I believe, is a timely one. That as we head into 2014, that each of us, me first, me first, would put on the instructions that Paul has very clearly laid out for us. I believe he wants us to take seriously his emphatic and urgent command to protect and guard the unity that we have because of our union with Jesus. I think he wants us to see our union with Jesus in such a way, this perfect, unique union that we have, this strong union, God-made union, the one that was made from eternity past and eternity future. I think he wants us to see it and treasure it and value it so much it will cut some slack for others in our church. I think it's important that each of us, me first, puts on the five virtues that Paul says. That if we were to take humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love, and if we were to take those things and we were to put them on, if we were to apply them and use them in the way that Paul says to do so, we wouldn't have too much trouble maintaining unity at all. Because it's the Holy Spirit. Those are spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit working through us will allow us to maintain and protect and guard that unity. And that unity that we have as a church will bring glory to God. And it'll shine for visitors when they walk in those doors. And they'll shine in our faces when we go to work or we go to school or we walk in and we see our neighbors in our, in our neighborhoods. And so I just want to close by praying that God will, through his Holy Spirit, enable us to do what Paul says, to guard and protect the unity that we have because of our union with Jesus. Would you pray with me? In fact, would you stand with me as I pray? Lord God, I just want to pause and tell you thank you for your son Jesus. I thank you for the union that I have with Jesus and many others in this room have with Jesus because of his death on the cross. It's a union, Lord God, that you ordained before the foundations of the earth and one that will maintain and stand strong even though we try to mess it up throughout all eternity. I thank you for the bond that we share one through another because of that common bond that we have through your son Jesus. And I pray... I pray that all of us, me first, would take seriously Paul's emphatic command for us to protect and to guard and to keep and maintain the unity that we have through your Son Jesus. I pray that we would see this union that we have with your Son Jesus 
and place such a high value on it that we would treasure it. This strong and eternal divine God-made union, Lord God, that, that would become real to us, and they would recognize it in those who are around us, that we would value it, that we treasure it. I pray that each of us, Lord God, me first, would put on humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love in order to maintain the unity. And I pray, Lord God, that through all things, the unity that you have given us would shine, would shine to people who walk in our doors, would shine to people who see us on the street or at work or in our neighborhood or in our schools. And that you, O oh God, would be glorified through all of it. I pray all this in the powerful and precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.